need a gavel. If you could return to your seats, please. Time to get rolling, folks. <laughs> it's like the worst ever. <laughs> need a gavel to bang. <laughs> okay, if you can head back to your seats, please. Get started. The official word. Yep. <laughs> okay. All right. Good morning. A scripture for today is from Second Timothy, the third chapter. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Father God, thank you for your word, and uh, I just pray for... Uh, you to focus our hearts and minds um, on what you have to teach us here today and um, fill your servant Josh um, with your spirit in bringing that word to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Am I on? There we go. Okay. Well, today um, I want to confess I'm going to be speaking to the choir today. Uh, and some of what, I, what I'm going to say, or a lot of what I'm going to say. But uh, I also need to admit that I, I do that with, with just utter joy. I mean, I do that with sincere joy and gladness in my heart that I get to speak to a group of people about the Bible and its importance in the life of the church. And I'm doing that to a church that loves the Bible. So I praise God for that. I praise God for you and your love for God's Word and your commitment to it. So, but I also feel like Peter who said, hey, listen, I don't have any problem reminding you of something you've already heard before, uh, especially when it's a central truth. I have no problem, he said, 
bringing this to your remembrance. Um, I once heard a guy say, and I'm not going to guess who it was because I can't remember, but he said the most important word in the New Testament is remember. Remember. So I'm just going to start my message off by saying these are things we need to probably not learn for the first time, but remember. So uh, I just want to jump right into it. Here's, my, here's where I want to go today. I want to talk this morning about how a commitment to all the Bible is necessary for the life, joy, and well-being of the church. That's my big idea. I'm going to repeat that over and over and over again. Well, Reed may get upset with me by the end of my message because he doesn't like the repetitiveness, but I'm going to repeat it at least five or six times. A commitment to all the Bible is necessary for the life, joy, and well-being of the church. So in a sense this morning, I want to call you as a church, call us as a church, to a greater commitment to the scriptures, to the Bible. So in a sense, I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you something you don't know or haven't heard, at least many or most of you, but I'm calling you to remember, I'm, remind, I'm reminding you this morning of the importance of being committed to God's word. Now in my big idea, my, my, my overall statement, I said it's necessary for the life, joy, and well-being of the church. Now, when I say necessary, I mean necessary like a building's foundation is necessary. Now, nobody would ever come to your house and think that your foundations were so beautiful, okay? No one's going to come and say, my, my, you have such beautiful foundations. They may come and love the exterior of your home and love how it's decorated inside, but nobody's going to boast about your foundations. And more than likely, a homeowner is not going to boast about their own foundations either. However, without a foundation, a building won't last long. With a weak foundation, a building will eventually crumble. And with an uneven foundation, a building will grow crooked and, ha- and be skewed. But strong foundations will allow you to withstand storms or allow your house to. Endure the passing of time and build high and beautiful and broad structures on top of it. So, it's one thing to say that we're committed to the Bible. This is a truism. This is an obvious truth. It's one thing to say that we're committed to the Bible. It's something altogether different to actually be committed to the Bible. Okay? We could have a placard out in front of the building this morning saying, We are a Bible-believing church. But... When the Holy Spirit searches inside this room, does he find that we are a Bible-believing church? Do we say that, or is, are we, in fact, a Bible-believing church? Are we, in fact, committed to the Bible? So, I want to move from the abstractions, the I- ideals, and talk about the reality of being committed to the Scriptures, to God's very own words that we have in the Bible. Jesus, um, Matt mentioned this just a few moments ago, but Jesus, at the end of his sermon on the mount, Matthews 5 to 7, at the very end, Jesus talks about two people who both hear his words. One man hears his words, but doesn't do anything about it, doesn't put them into practice, doesn't obey. He just hears, but he doesn't do anything with it. And he's like a man who builds his house on the sand. And the wind blows, and the storm comes, and it beats against the house, and the house is obliterated. It's destroyed. It doesn't have foundations. The other person, the other man, hears the words of Christ, and he does them. 
And he's like a man who builds his house on a rock. And the storm comes, the wind blows, you know, beats against the house, but the house stands. So I want us to be reminded and go deeper in our commitment to all of the Bible because it's necessary for the life, joy, and well-being of the church in general and of this church and of you individually. So you could certainly apply everything I'm going to say to you individually, and I hope you do, but I also want to think about this corporately. So the first phrase from our text this morning is all scripture. Paul says all scripture is breathed out by God, etc. First of all, our commitment must be to all of the Bible. Not parts of the Bible, but the entire Bible. A.W. Tozer once said, the whole Bible makes whole Christians. The whole Bible, all of it from Genesis to Revelation, not throwing out any of it, makes a whole Christian or makes whole Christians. Paul here has in mind the written scriptures, not oral tradition or something else like that, but the written scriptures of the Bible. The Greek word that he uses for scripture is the word graphe, which is used 51 times in the New Testament. And of those 51 times, 49 times, it's, it's always, in those 49 times, always referring to the Old Testament scriptures, which is what, what, what they had back, back then at this time, right? But there's also at least two times where Paul and Peter are referring to some New Testament scriptures that were circulating at the time that these books were written. So it's the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures. So I'm calling us to a commitment to all of scripture. Our commitment must be to all of the Bible, both the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, to the law as well as the gospel, to the practical ethical teachings of Christ, as well as the miracles and healings and amazing works of Christ, to the sovereign actions of God, where it seems like God is just moving and doing things unilaterally on his own, as well as the commands he gives to us. We need to be committed to the sweet and savory promises of God, as well as the strong and severe warnings of God. We need to be committed to the wisdom literature of the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, as well as the historical accounts of Joshua and First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. We need to be committed to the worshipful poetic passages in the Psalms, as well as the practical peanut butter and jelly sandwich passages in the epistles like the book of James. Just clear cut, just straight at you. We need to be committed to the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2, as well as the prophecies of the eschatological end of all things and Revelation and some of the prophets. All of the scriptures are in view here. Paul has in mind all the scriptures when he says all scripture here. From Genesis to Revelation, speaking on behalf of God here. All of God's written words that we have in the Bible, we are called to be committed to. So, to repeat, a commitment to all the Bible is necessary. You might say, why is it necessary? Well, for at least five reasons I want to point out this morning. A commitment to the Bible is necessary for the life, joy, and well-being of the church because the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is authoritative. Okay, we're going to talk about that. It's powerful. 
it's profitable. Three, number four, it equips us. And number five, it protects us. So let's take a step back and work through each one of these. First of all, our commitment to the Bible, excuse me, we must be committed to all the scriptures because all of the Bible is authoritative. This is, I think, probably the most important point this morning. So I might spend the most time, but if I spend 10 minutes on this or 15 minutes, don't worry, I'm not spending 15 minutes on every point, okay? So all the Bible, we're called to be committed to it all because it's all authoritative. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher in the 19th century in London at Westminster Chapel, uh, he has, at least in my opinion, I've read uh, uh, some of his books and things from him, read some of his sermons. He tends to exaggerate or overstate things to make a point. I'm going to let him speak, though, okay? This might be overstated, but I think it's powerful. He says, There can be no doubt whatsoever that all the troubles in the church today and most of the troubles in the world are due to a departure from the authority of the Bible. So the central truth in dealing with the Bible's authority is to state that the Bible has a divine origin such that it is full of the true and authoritative words of God. The phrase that I want to look at to to support this point is where Paul says all scripture is breathed out by God. It's like the very breath of God. This Greek word, theophnustos, is only used one time in the Bible, and it's right here. One time in the New Testament, right here. And this word means that the scriptures themselves are the creation of God. So when it says that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, we need to know that ultimately the Holy Spirit wrote this letter through Paul to Timothy, and then to us, consequently. So the New Testament, or all the scriptures themselves, are the creation of God, reflecting his very breath, They are his very speaking. So that when we open the scriptures, it's not just that God spoke at one time and they're powerful and authoritative because of that. It's when we open the scriptures, God speaks. God speaks now when we open up the scriptures. B.B. Warfield, who was a theologian in the 20th century, said this Greek word affirms, quote, affirms that the scriptures owe their origin to an activity of God the Holy Spirit and are in the highest and truest sense his creation. It is on this foundation of divine origin that all the high attributes of scripture are built. So in other words, if the Bible is not really and truly of divine origin and really and truly God's words, we have no basis for having a high view of scripture or having a, as high a view of scripture as we are commended to have. So it's authoritative. It is God's very words. This, of course, speaks to the absolute uniqueness of the Bible. These are not merely human words. The words of this book are not just human beings that kind of came up with some neat things to say. It's not, and it's not just that God kind of inspired some things, put some things in their minds as they were sleeping one night, and they tried to write it down as best they could. These words are God's words. The Bible is utterly unique. J.C. Ryle says this about the uniqueness of the Bible. He says, quote, I assert that the Bible is utterly unlike all other books that were ever written. 
because its writers were specially inspired or enabled by God for the work which they did. I say that the Bible comes to us with a claim which no other book possesses. It is stamped with divine authority. In this respect, it stands entirely alone. Listen to this next phrase he says. Sermons and tracts and theological writings of all kinds may be sound and edifying, but they are only the handiwork of uninspired men. The Bible alone is the book of God. Now, of course, this doesn't remove the human element in the writing of Scripture. Uh, I think it's 2 Peter 1, I think it's verse 21 says that, um, that men, it says that no prophecy came from the will of man. And it's not just some guys came, thought they came up with some ideas or kind of willed to write some things down in a book. It's not like that, but rather men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was carrying Paul and Peter and Moses and Joshua and these men, and they, they spoke from God as the Spirit of God carried them along. So, the Bible is authoritative. Therefore, all the words of Scripture are God's very words in such a way that to obey or believe the Scriptures, excuse me, to obey and believe the Scriptures is to obey and believe God himself. And, on the other side, to disobey and disbelieve Scripture is to disobey and disbelieve God himself. Now, the reality is every person has an ultimate authority that they live by, right? Everyone does. We are born naturally with our own desires, own inclinations, own feelings, own reasoning being our final authority. Unfortunately, there's there's an alarming trend even among Christians. Maybe it's not an alarming trend. Maybe it's always been there. I don't know. But there's, there certainly is an alarming situation, even among Christians, to essentially question the Bible when it seems to offend our own human sensibilities. Maybe you've heard, maybe you've been talking to somebody and, um, and, and talking about kind of a, well, it seems to be a controversial matter for, for an individual, and they say, well, that's not the way that I know God. Or I don't know, that's not, that's not the God that I worship. Or, I just don't know if I believe that's true. But for the church who holds that the Bible is the word of God and is the authoritative words of God, Martin Lloyd-Jones asks an appropriate question. He asks this, We all, therefore, have to face this ultimate and final question. Do we accept the Bible as the word of God, as the sole authority in all matters of faith and practice, or do we not? Is the whole of my thinking, this is Martin Lloyd-Jones still speaking, is the whole of my thinking governed by Scripture, or do I come with my reason and pick and choose out of Scripture and sit in judgment upon it, putting myself and modern knowledge forward as the ultimate standard and authority? So a commitment to the Bible is necessary for the life, joy, and well-being of the church because the scriptures are the authoritative words of God. Second, all of the Bible is powerful. And I get that again from this phrase, God breathed. All the Bible is powerful. There really and truly is no um, 
There's no need to reconcile the power of the Holy Spirit and the Bible. There's no need to do it. God doesn't separate the two. These are the God-breathed scriptures. These are the Spirit's words. And his words are powerful. Because God's word or the scriptures or all of the Bible is authoritative, because they carry this divine authority, the scriptures are powerful. The breath of God, in our passage, God breathed scriptures. All scriptures, God breathed. But the breath of God used other places in the Bible is a symbol of God's almighty power. Or as B.B. Warfield says, the bearer of his creative word. Think of Psalm 33, 6. It says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, their host. By the breath of his mouth, the host, all the starry hosts were made by the breath of his mouth. The billions and billions and trillions of stars in the sky were made by the breath of his mouth. And we have the God-breathed scriptures in front of us. They are powerful. Warfield goes on to say, God's breath is the irresistible outflow of his power. So, God, by his word, created the universe and everything that has been created out of nothing. He did it by his word. The God-breathed scriptures we see in James chapter 1 have the power to create life in you and me. And that's what happened. It says in James chapter 1 verse 18 that, that um, oh, how does it go? Something like, uh, by his own will. We came into being by the word of his truth. By his own will, we came into being. By what? By the word of his truth. By his God-breathed word. God's word, God's scriptures have the power. The God-breathed scriptures have the power to, to, excuse me, have the power to change and renew and revive. In Psalm 119, the psalmist prays this three times at least. I found three times yesterday looking through Psalm 119, but over and over again, he says, revive me, O God, according to your word. God's word, God's scriptures have the power to do deep and searching, surgical work in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. As Hebrews chapter four says, the word of God is living and active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it divides to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. The God-breathed scriptures of God, has the, they have the power to endure the ages. As Isaiah says, and I think it's Isaiah 40, and Peter quotes in 1 Peter 1, though the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of the Lord endures forever. No matter what you think is beautiful outside and amazing and, 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 and will last for a long time, it will not outlast God's, God's word. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the God-breathed gospel is itself. It's not just that it has power, but that it is the power of God to those who are being saved. All of the Bible is powerful. So a commitment to all the Bible is necessary for the life, 
joy and well-being of the church because all of the Bible is powerful. Number three, all the Bible is profitable. All of the Bible is profitable. Some might say, okay, so God's word is powerful, it's authoritative, but does it have any practical value in my life? Paul here would say, oh yeah, absolutely. It's profitable. It's deeply beneficial. It has great practical benefits for our lives. And Paul gives us four ways that it's deeply profitable for us here. It's profitable for teaching. We need teaching, don't we? We come to God, and when we come to God, we are largely ignorant about the things of God. And even when we come to God, come to Christ through faith, by his gracious work in our lives, we are largely still ignorant, and we need God's teaching. We need his instruction. I remember hearing of a conversation between two friends, and uh, one of them had recently come to know Jesus, and he was being changed and being transformed, and he talked about the Bible a lot. And his friend said, man, it seems like you've been brainwashed. And the new Christian said, well, yes, I suppose my brains did need some, some scrubbing. <clears throat> We need teaching. We need instruction. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs gives us a lot of encouragement in the teaching and instruction of the scriptures. Proverbs chapter 1 says this, verses 7 to 9. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants around your neck. The writer of Proverbs, Solomon, saying, this is gracious. This is is a good and gracious thing. Listen to your mother's teaching. Listen to your father's instruction. Or more ultimately, listen, receive God's teaching and instruction. The scriptures are profitable in that way. We all need a good brain scrubbing. We all do, okay? So the, the scriptures are profitable for teaching. But Paul also says the scriptures are profitable for reproof. They're profitable for being reproved or rebuked from time to time. We need that. We need to be rebuked from time to time. Those who approach the Bible with ears only to hear soothing, affirming words, forfeit much benefit from the Bible. Let me say that again. Those who go to the Bible only to hear affirming and soothing words, they forfeit much benefit that it offers us and gives to us. No, the scriptures deal with us. They deal with us on every single Level. They deal with us in our joys and in our sorrows. They deal with us in our obedience and in our disobedience. And here Paul says it's profitable for reproof. Again, listen to Proverbs chapter 1, verses 23 to 25. Solomon says, if you turn at my reproof, or let's, let's put it this way. God says, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, 
I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. Turn at his reproof. The scriptures are profitable because they reprove us, they rebuke us, and we need that from time to time. But Paul also says the scriptures, all scriptures profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction. There are times we need to be corrected. Oftentimes we get off track. The word correction here denotes that being restored. Okay, so we, we take a wrong turn in our lives and we need to be corrected or we take a, long, a wrong turn in our thinking about God or about a situation or about life or about ourselves. And we need to be corrected. We need to be brought back to alignment with God's word, with the truth. That happens all the time, doesn't it? Well, doesn't that happen all the time? We just get off in our thinking and we need to be brought back. Maybe, maybe we get off in our thinking so we, we are walking around in despair over a situation. And what do we need? We need correction. We need God to remind us or someone else, God to use someone else to remind us of the promise of God for us in our given situation. We need correction. And finally, all the Bible is profitable for training in righteousness. The word training, this Greek word paideia, which it's, it's a pretty pregnant word, quite frankly. But I think in this, in this context, it means education. To be educated in a life of righteousness. To be educated as a disciple. When I say education, some of you think classroom. Okay, I'm sitting in a classroom with my notebook and my pencil. Think more like a field trip, okay? The scriptures train us in righteousness. They train us in living a life of righteousness. The scriptures profit us in that they train us in the path of righteousness or God's standards for life. They train us, they show us God's perfect righteousness and his moral standards and they commend to us to live that way. They train us in living that way. I think of Psalm 23 where it talks about our good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads me. Not only does he restore my, restore my soul, he doesn't just do all these nice and wonderful comforting things, but he also is leading me on a path of righteousness. Well, Paul is saying all the scriptures are profitable because these are the primary means. The Bible is the primary means by which God, the Holy Spirit, leads us on this path of righteousness. Remember, we all live by an ultimate authority, right? We all live by an ultimate authority. What is my ultimate authority for living in a path of righteousness? Is it my own inclinations? Is it my own desires? Or is it the scriptures? Is it God's word? He, our good shepherd, through, I would, I would say, through the scriptures, Paul, I think, would say in this passage, leads us in paths of righteousness or in a way that pleases God. So a commitment to the Bible is necessary for the life, joy, and well-being of the church because they are profitable. Third, or excuse me, fourth, all the Bible equips us. All the Bible equips us. Paul says all scriptures breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good 
work. So it equips us for every good work, which means it completely furnishes us for every single good work. I don't know about you, but that seems like a huge claim to me. I, I, I think I usually question that. <clears throat> this equips me for everything I need to know how to do the good works God has put before me? The Bible does? That's what it says. So, if we believe this, think of your station in life. Your role as a husband, as a wife, as a mother, as a father, as a son, as a daughter, as a co-worker, as a neighbor. Think of your station in life in this church as members of one another, anointed by the Holy Spirit to, to bless and serve one another. The scriptures equip us for every good work. Everything got good that God wants us to do, the Bible equips us for. You might say, that just seems too far-fetched. That, that just seems like too big of a claim. There's got, I mean, there's got to be something else. Remember, they're the God-breathed scriptures. We're not talking about words on a page. We're not talking about dead doctrine, right? We're not talking about getting our theological, you know, ducks in a row. We're talking about the God-breathed scriptures by which we were saved. So how does the Bible equip us? Well, I'm going to tell you how I don't think it equips us first, okay? I don't think it equips us in the sense that it gives us a how-to for every situation because we just know that it doesn't, right? We just know that there are situations we face in life. There's not a specific verse at some place in the Bible that helps us know exactly what to do in the situation, okay? It's not like the ultimate how-to wiki site, you know? Okay, so how does it equip us? I believe that daily and constant exposure to the scriptures, which shows us the greatness, power, wisdom, love, and grace of God in such a way that the Spirit, with the Spirit's help, we find more joy in Him and the ways of sin and worldliness become more and more distasteful. Let me say that again. Constant exposure to the scriptures, where we are thinking about the scriptures, meditating on, reading them, praying over them, asking God to make them real to us. We see the greatness, the glory, the power, the wisdom, the love, the grace, and mercy of God in Christ in such a way that the Holy Spirit helps us to see sin as more and more distasteful and living for God and Christ more and more beautiful. The Bible changes us so that our obedience is not externally coerced, like you better do this or else, or here's what you need to do in this specific situation, and here's what you need to do in this specific situation. Of course, there are passages like that, but the Bible wants to change us on the inside so obedience doesn't come externally coerced, but rather comes freely from the heart. The scriptures do this when we are exposed to them daily in reading in meditation, and in praying over them. They equip us for every good work. So a commitment to the Bible, to all the Bible, is necessary for the life, joy, and well-being of the church because they equip us. They equip the church. The scriptures do. Number five, my, my last main point I want to make this morning. All of the Bible, we're, we're to be committed to all the Bible because all of the Bible protects. 
All the Bible protects us. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4. Paul says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. In this warning, Paul is explicitly concerned about a few things. Those that will not endure sound teaching, those who will wander away from the truth, and those who will wander off into myths. Paul is speaking of those who are interested in new and novel ideas. New and novel ideas. Those who are more interested in mystical experiences than the solid truth of God's word. And those who... Uh, those, who, um, those who are drawn to teaching that appeals to their natural desires. When he says they'll, they'll accumulate teachers for themselves who will itch their ears. They have tick, tickled ear, tickling ears and they want them to be itched. So let me say that again. It's those who are interested in new, new and novel ideas, Paul's talking of. Those who are, are, are overly interested in mystical experiences and those who are drawn to teaching that appeals to natural desires. I mean, one of, the, one, of the, one of the big concerns I have about this, about a, what I would call a, a um, out-of-bounds prosperity gospel, I believe God prospers us. He gives us all things in Christ pertaining to life and godliness. But this idea that God, through Jesus, wants all believers to be rich. One reason I'm, I'm really concerned about that is it appeals to man's natural desire for greed, Right? It just appeals to the most base and natural desires in sinful man. Now, of course, God blesses people with prosperity and material, material wealth. But this, sent, but this teaching that says God wants all people, all of his people, if they trust in Jesus enough, if they sow enough seed, you may have heard that phrase before, then they will be rich. I remember here a reading J.I. Packer one time say that, um, a truth, one truth, or a truth, a real truth that is put forward as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. And that's something I think can be a danger for us. We get stuck on a truth that becomes the only truth, and then we can get off or get skewed in our thinking. So, a commitment to all of the scriptures, all of them, the glorious promises of God, the wonderful grace of God, but also the warnings of God, also the severity of God, the love of God, but also the justice of God, the the mercy of God, and also the righteousness of God helps keep us and helps keep, excuse me, helps keep us protected so all the Bible is necessary, all of it. A commitment to all the Bible is necessary for the life, joy, and well-being of the church because the scriptures keep us safe. They protect us. So when we take a step back and look at all these things we've talked about, the scriptures are authoritative. They are powerful. They are profitable. They, are, they equip us and they protect us. I hope you see that this word, this Bible, as it comes to us, comes to us as grace. It's all grace. 
you think about God speaks to us. I mean, the God of the universe speaks to us. What a gift. And this word is powerful. What a gift. And it profits us. How amazing. And it equips us for every good work. Praise be to God. And it protects us. Thank you, Lord. It is all grace. Which I think is why Paul begins many of his letters. I don't know if you've noticed this as you read through um, many of Paul's letters. In fact, it might be all of them. I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't look at the beginning of all of them just to make sure. But many of them begin with this salutation. Grace to you. Why? Because as he's writing and as they're reading the God-breathed scriptures, grace comes. Grace is coming when we open up the Bible by faith and read what God has to say. So I want to close this morning with some application. If this is true about God's word, I hope, I hope I've made my case that a commitment to the Bible is necessary because it's authoritative, powerful, profitable. It equips us and it protects us. If this is true, how should we approach the Bible? How should we approach it when we come to worship together on Sunday? How should we approach it in Bible studies? How should we approach it in our homes? I want to cruise through these relatively quickly. We should approach the Bible with humility. It may not be, maybe it shouldn't be the first on my list, but it first came to my mind, okay? We don't stand, we should never stand in judgment over God's word. We should bow our knees, bow our hearts, really, to God and his word. Isaiah 66, verse two, the prophet says, on behalf of God, or God says through Isaiah, this is the man that I I will esteem. This man who's humble and has a contrite heart and who trembles at my word. The one who trembles at my word is not cavalier with the Bible, but says, if these are the words of Almighty God, then I had better give careful attention to what he says and humble myself underneath them. James says, with meekness, receive the word of God, or with humility, receive the word of God implanted, which is able to save your soul. So we should approach the scriptures with humility. As I'm going through this, all right, please, in my mind, as I'm saying these things, I'm praying for you and me that God would do this in us more. And please join me in that. Okay, as I'm saying these things, don't just, don't just agree with me, but say, Lord, do it in me, do it in my brothers and sisters here. Okay, second, we should approach the scriptures with a pursuit of God himself. We should see the scriptures not as a mural that we look at, but as a window that we see through, okay? A mural, we're like, wow, what an amazing mural, okay? And I can, I can, I can fall into this trap, okay? Because I like theology. I like, I, like think, I like having my system. I like putting things in place, okay? And there's a place for that. But we want to look through the scriptures like a window to see the glory of God, We want the scriptures to serve us in that way where we are pursuing the living God through his word. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. He said, you search the scriptures diligently. Well, the Old Testament for them. Because you think in the scriptures there's life. He goes on to say, but these bear witness of me and you reject me. 
So we want to see the scriptures as a window to look through to behold by faith the glory of God and pursue God. Number three, we should, pers- we should approach the scriptures with hope. If it really does profit us, if it really is beneficial, if it really does equip us for every good work. I mean, I understand, I understand what it's like to open up the Bible and not really have a, a, a deep appreciation and sense that God is going to do something amazing in my life through the scriptures. But we ought to stir up our hope, right? That God wants to profit me. God wants to so benefit my soul as I open up his word. Grace is coming to me. And so we should have great hope that when we open up the scriptures, when we hear the word of God preach on Sunday, that God is going to do something. Hope, hope, hope. Think of, listen to this word, or listen to this verse in, in uh, Romans 15. Verse four says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, teaching, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope, okay? We should approach the scriptures with hope. Number four, we should approach the scriptures with faith. We should approach the scriptures with faith. I know there's overlap here with hope and faith. I get it. But we should approach the scriptures with faith that as we are even reading it, it says in Hebrews, talking about the the Jews that didn't believe and fell in the wilderness, it says they heard the gospel just like others did, but their hearing was not accompanied with faith. So it didn't benefit them. It didn't profit them at all. So we want to approach the scriptures with faith. Number five, we want to approach the scriptures with thanksgiving. The great God of the universe speaks to us. And I don't need to wait for the clouds to part. Probably won't happen. Maybe someday it will. I don't know. But I don't need to wait for that. Okay? He speaks through his word authoritatively, powerfully, in a life-changing way. And we ought to be so full of thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for your word. Read through Psalm 119. Listen to the psalmist speak about the law of God, the precepts of God, which is all just synonyms for God's words. He speaks with such a high regard, just praise and worship for the God who has spoken through his scriptures. Number Six, we should read the scriptures or approach the scriptures with prayer, with prayer. As we're, before we open it, as we're reading it, we should always be in this dialogue with God. Remember, we're, we're pursuing God. We should be in this dialogue with God. God, show me. This seems like this is important. Just show me what this is saying. I I need this, okay? Or this promise is, I know it's sweet, but I'm not feeling it. Just make it live to me. We should be be in this dialogue with God as we are in his word, as we're listening to preaching, as we're doing Bible study. Psalm 119, the psalmist said, Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Make that your daily prayer. God, open my eyes that I would see wondrous things out of your law. Number seven, we should approach the scriptures with the coming generations in mind, okay? Deuteronomy chapter six, such a, such a central passage about generational, passing on God's truth to the next generations. 
Okay, what, is, what, is, uh, uh, what does it say? It says, these things, the law of God that's been spoken, that Moses wrote down, uh, you are to <clears throat> speak about these things. You're to write them. You're to put them on your forehead. You're, you're to write them on, their, on your doorpost. You're to talk with them to your children as you are walking on the way, as you lie down, when you wake up over dinner, kind of putting that in there. Um, and, uh, and you're to pass them from generation to generation to generation. I read a book a few weeks ago by a guy named Peter Jones, um, who does a lot of, well, anyways, I won't get into that. Uh, Peter Jones, he said this. He said, there's this general tendency to slide, and it goes like this. One generation is committed to God's truth, okay? And if they don't carefully pass that down, diligently pass that down to their children, the next generation, the second generation, assumes God's truth. And the third generation, they reject it, okay? Commitment, assumption, reject. So we want to commit, how should I put this? We want to think about our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. And number eight, we need to approach the scriptures with a ready obedience. With a ready obedience. Like Samuel, who as a little child, when he heard the Lord speak to him in the night, he said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. He had a, he had a ready heart. Your servant is listening. I'm ready to do what you say with a ready obedience. Sometimes that's the missing link. It's just simple obedience. We believe a lot of the good th- right things and praise God for that. That's so important. Doctrine does matter. But sometimes our obedience is the missing link or is a missing link. So we need to approach the scriptures with a heart that says, whatever you say, I will do. Amen. So a commitment to the Bible, all of the Bible is necessary for our life, joy, and well-being. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for the God-breathed scriptures. Thank you that these are your words, God. And I pray, Lord, well, first of all, God, I just thank you for this church and the love that I know my brothers and sisters here have for your word. And so, God, what I say today is by way of reminder and hopefully encouragement. God, take us deeper in our commitment, God, to your word, to all of it, to all of it from beginning to end. For God, we want to know your words, for your words are life-giving. They are powerful. Just like Jeremiah, we want to know your words to be where we taste them. We say, my goodness, I tasted them and found them to be the joy of my heart. Help us, Lord, to encounter you through your word in such a way that we would respond like that. In Jesus' name, amen. Stay seated if you would. Uh, The men who are going to be passing out the elements, if you can just come down, and John's going to come lead us here in our time of the Lord's Supper.